possessing Med Device Unleashed Podcast. Your next level source for all things sales and device. Now, here's your host, Jamie Tipton. Jamie Tipton. The Med Device Unleashed Podcast is brought to you by Live Fresh. Look, ladies and gentlemen, the Live Fresh brand and their clothing are legit. Whether it's fashion, fitness, sport, or your mindset, Live Fresh applies to it all. With their apparel, you receive premium quality materials paired with subtle and sharp designs because at Live Fresh, we believe less is more. It's about living your best life daily, no matter what's thrown at you, and looking damn good doing it. Live Fresh, it's a lifestyle. And at Live Fresh, they love helping people, which I love. And in fact, they donate 7% of their proceeds to the Clean Water Project, which is a nonprofit organization based around providing reliable water sources and delivering clean water to sub-Saharan African communities who suffer from a lack of access to clean water and proper sanitation. You can visit Live Fresh at www.livefreshbrand.com or follow them on Instagram at livefreshbrand. Or you can enter my code upon checkout. That's MDU21 to earn 10% off your first order. That's MDU21 to earn 10% off your first order. Episode number 12 is here, my friends, and I can't wait to share this one with you. We have Sean Bryan on the podcast. Not only is Sean a great friend of mine, a guy that's going to be in my wedding, but the dude is the most seasoned and polished sales professional I know without question. You want to talk about ROI? This podcast gives you a return on your investment, which is your time in this case, in a very big way. Sean's a six-time President's Club winner. He's worked for large companies like Stryker and Boston Scientific, and he has also worked for multiple startups along the way. Sean's been a clinical specialist, he's been a territory manager, and he's been a regional sales director. Crank that volume. Here he is, Sean Bryant. All right, Shawnee, we're live, man. So we're episode number, and it's funny because I actually just had to ask Sean, I was like, what episode are we on? So we're, we're episode number 12. Here, Med Device Unleashed. And man, this has been a long, long time coming. And it's just such a pleasure to have to have this guy on. I mean, he's he's one of my best friends. And we won't get into it. I mean, I could talk about this guy for 10 hours, but he's one of my best friends. He's gonna be in my wedding. And besides that, he's also he's a guy that I look up to quite a bit from a career standpoint, too. So we're gonna kind of not only learn his story, which is very cool, but we're also gonna take a deep dive into some of the stuff that I Again, he's very humble about his his whole deal, but I'll tell you, he's got some great pearls from a sales standpoint, and he's going to kind of let us in and tune us in on a couple of things. He's been a regional sales director. He's been a clinical specialist. He's been a territory manager. The experience is just, it's there, and he knows how to mine it out, and we're going to get some good stuff out of him. So here he is. Sorry, I feel like I'm talking too much already. Sean Bryant, welcome, my man. Jamie Tipton, it is good to be here. Med Device Unleashed. I do agree. I feel like it's been a long time coming, but man, I, I'm excited. I am excited. I feel like, I'll tell you what, though. I feel like you've had some unbelievable people on this podcast. I mean, you've got authors, you've got physicians, NPs, CEOs. <laughs> you got something to live up to. No, I appreciate I that. Do. Man. We, we've been really fortunate with the guests for this podcast, for sure. I don't take that for granted at all, but you fit right in, man. And I know we were talking a little bit in the green room kind of before this, but I think, I think it's probably best that we kind of just talk about, you know, 30,000 foot view, kind of what's your story? What's your story from, kind of from the ground up? Because I think it's super interesting and I think it could give people just a little glimpse into you and also maybe light some fires under some careers after they hear this. 
Yeah, so my story starts in Minnesota, which is where I'm born and raised. Went to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Played hockey there. And really, before I get into my work experience, there were kind of two other experiences that set me on the path to get to where I'm at today. So initially, my mom, my sophomore year of high school, became a dietitian. So overnight, the cupboards transitioned from Doritos and cookies to everything fruits and vegetables. So I started asking her the question of why, trying to better understand our food choices and really optimizing our athletic performance. At the time, I was a high school athlete, so that's kind of what I cared about. So my mom seemed to have all the answers. My curiosity continued to grow. And from there, it began to snowball from caring about it to kind of reading and learning about it. And really, an initial interest became a hobby and turned into a passion. Secondly, between my junior and senior year of college, I ended up living in, in London and doing a marketing internship. So I was very fortunate, was able to travel all over Europe, immerse myself in the culture, came home with a travel bug, and really looking for new experiences. So I ended up graduating college, had a degree in finance and marketing, uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. So my first position out of college, I ended up underwriting life insurance. So essentially what that position was, I was the middleman between the client trying to buy the policy and the insurance company issuing the policy. And so I was the advocate for the actual client by looking over their health history and painting the most positive picture for the insurance company to then offer up the best premium or the best rate class. So the lowest premium for the client. So it was extremely interesting. And what it did is solidified my interest and passion for healthcare, really health and wellness and all things related to the human body. And what I also realized in that position, I didn't necessarily enjoy the desk and I needed a little bit more face-to-face interaction and a little bit more variety and change of scenery. So from there, ended up talking to a buddy who was a couple years older than me in college. And at the time he was working for Stryker Orthopedics. And it was kind of the conversation of, hey, you know, we have a position available. Have you ever thought about medical device? And I really hadn't. So soup to nuts, he walked me through the day, day in the life, um, the nuances of the, of, of the industry, what he enjoyed about it, what the OR was like. Um, it, it seemed really interesting. So I ended up walking through that path, um, going through the interview process, um, ended up getting the position with Stryker. So that was my initial kind of foot in the industry. And I fell in love with it immediately. So the rush of the OR, the competitive nature of the field, the fact that every day looked different. I mean, so Stryker, first and foremost, has such a great training program. So it gave me a really strong foundation to feel confident in the field. I think that really helped. But then it really gave me everything else that I was kind of looking for, both my experience traveling abroad, just kind of the variety of life, but then also the the human wellness or just the health and wellness, the human anatomy, the biology. Uh, really gave me a taste of that as well. So it seemed to marry a number of different things that I was looking for in a position. So from there, I, p- I pivoted to a position with Boston Scientific in Texas. And I am, ended up getting a call. And it, the position, again, was in Texas. And it, it really coupled a few things. So it was, one, the ability to travel, the ability to immerse myself in a new culture. And really, I felt like it was that in Texas because I was from Minnesota. Um, but it really kind of what did it for me and the reason I moved to Texas was the fact that it was an interventional pain. And at the time I did a little research on it and talked to a number of people in the industry and it was just kind of the up and coming hot specialty. I know I say up and coming and I'm sure it was, was pretty solidified at that point, but it seemed as a lot of new technology was heading in that direction. So headed down to Texas, new experience, really wanted to, to, to dive right in. 
So I started with Boston Scientific selling SCS or spinal cord stimulators in their neuromodulation division. So I did that for four and a half years. Um, after that experience, ended up moving to a startup company called Vertiflex. And Vertiflex was selling an interspinal spacer for lumbar stenosis. And I was joke, Vertiflex seemed to be my master's course or my master's degree in medical device, whereas Boston Scientific and Stryker was kind of my undergrad experience. And I don't mean that in a demeaning sense at all for Boston Scientific and Stryker. What I mean is that big companies, they typically have experts in every sort of division in every sort of department. So if you need anything outside of sales, whether it be marketing or an HR or R&D, those companies have somebody that will get you an answer. So you just delegate. You delegate if a customer needs something, you delegate or you connect the dots, you get them in touch with the appropriate person, they get the answer back, and then you kind of wipe your hands clean of it, you move on. Vertiflex being a startup company, really by default, you wear so many hats, you seem to be the subject matter expert, at least you have to, to be somewhat of a subject matter expert in everything, from strategic rollouts to the new product rollouts to the sales, the marketing, all things creative. You seem to dabble a little bit in HR, in R&D. So extremely interesting in that at least to some degree, everything falls on you. But that's kind of what I fell in love with, with the initial startup atmosphere of a Vertiflex. And so from there, it was a better understanding to kind of see the bigger picture. Um, I was able to progress at Vertiflex to be a people manager as a regional sales director. And when I did so, I joined a group of eight regional sales directors that really, I look back on it, were kind of the movers and the shakers within our space. So they were the individuals that kind of understood the full ecosystem of healthcare, the bigger picture, or picture, excuse me, of what our vision was, and kind of putting the people and the processes in place to help us get there. So I was able to soak up their knowledge just by being in the rooms. And in my opinion, I did it from individuals that in probably short order in the near future are going to be C-suite leaders, at least a number of them. So I really relished my time at Vertiflex. I look back, it was it was a terrific experience and everything we were able to build there and accomplish there and the group we were able to do it with. So as of four months ago, I recently transitioned to another startup company called Vivex. So I launched a product called Viadisc, which is a tissue allograph that supplements degenerative discs. So another product, just like Vertiflex Superion, or at least I feel so, that will change the way that interventional spine physicians practice medicine. So it's pretty neat to back-to-back be able to do startup companies that are really launching something that change algorithms and completely disrupt a practice in actually a full space. So to wrap up an already long story, I've worked at big companies, I've worked at small companies, I've worked at established and startup companies, and I've also worked with established therapies and new disruptive technologies. So I have three takeaways from my career thus far. One, you need to take chances and put yourself out there. Calculated risk, yes, but you need to put yourself out there. Two, you need to find a mentor, industry-based and or physician-based, who can share their wisdom and bridge the knowledge gap more quickly. And along those same lines, the third thing, really, you need to surround yourself with the best people possible. So at the very least, if you do all that, you'll learn a lot, you'll develop in your career, and hopefully along the way, you'll find something that you're passionate in that you can pursue. Because if all those things line up, you'll love what you do, and you'll be very good at doing it. You know, Sean, I want to interject real quick. And you just brought up an awesome point, brother. So you were, you know, fail forward. So I was just taking my engagement photos up in Aspen, Colorado, and we're at, we're sitting at a bar. I don't even think, I didn't even think I told you this story, but we're sitting at a bar in Aspen 
And there's these two guys, we're eating dinner and they're eating dinner. And we end up kind of just talking a little bit after they finished up and we finished up. We were kind of just, we finished at the same time. And they were two of them, both of them were entrepreneurs. And one of the guys, I was telling him how I just launched Clutch City Medical and we had all this stuff going on. And he said, and you're going to love this. He was like, listen, don't be afraid of the unknown and fail forward fast. That was his advice. Fail forward fast. I love that. And I just really love that because people don't want to, they don't want to take a leap of faith. And sometimes you can be too safe with what you do. And his advice, I just really kind of, I just wanted to interject that because that, it just really hit for me. Fail forward fast. Even though you're failing, fail forward, learn from it and run. Don't just sit there and be afraid to fail. And Jamie, I'll take it one step further. And I mean, so you, you with launching Clutch City Medical, completely different in that you completely left your W-2, you went out on your own, had to buy your own health insurance, all that stuff. But even one step further back or 10 steps further back, when you're in W-2 and you're a sales rep or really anything, so we're talking about medical device so we can keep it at that, but there are so many people that play it safe every single day in their own role and never get better, never take a, take a leap of faith, never. I'm simply talking about a conversation with a customer that whether it be a challenger conversation, the challenger sale, obviously you've had Matt Dixon on the podcast, but in general, doing something that puts them outside of their comfort zone that they absolutely will scrape their knees and they will make mistakes on, but they'll grow and they'll learn from. And I feel like people are so scared of failure and they feel like failure, it's almost this, oh my God, it's failure, it's a bad thing. That's the best thing. Every self-help book you ever read will talk to you about failing and doing and failing as fast and as often as you possibly can. But as long as you learn from it, it's a great thing. If you don't learn from it, well, it's insanity, right? You're going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. You're going to continue to get the same results. I know you're reading because we've talked about it before. So I know you're doing it, but I know you're reading The Obstacle is the Way. And, we, you know, without getting in it, because I, I do think that's a phenomenal book, but it, it kind of taught me when I actually read it earlier or later last year, and I just really fell in love with it because people try to avoid obstacles. And it's someone is saying they try to avoid failure. They want to avoid all the obstacles and go around them. And the only real way you learn how to move forward is going over top of those obstacles. And obstacles, they're the way. I mean, not to obviously that's cliche to say it's the title of the book, but they are the way to go. I mean, they show you the path. The obstacles are the way. I mean, it's just, and it, it, this is kind of a pop where I know Sean's reading it. Now. I don't, you might be done by now. I don't know. Are you done reading it? No, I'm about two thirds of the way through. Yeah. So this is a pop. Both of us, he's currently reading. He's about done and I've read it. I mean, if you have not read that book, please go out and buy it. Anyway, I had to bring that up too, because it, it's made me kind of think about obstacles in a different way. Things that come up every day in, in territory, right? I mean, whether you don't get the meeting you want or the doc doesn't respond to what you're saying, you know, and you leave the meeting and you think, man, what? Now it's going to be a bad day because I talked to two docs and I feel like I didn't get to where I wanted to. And I don't know if they're interested in the product. And instead of just going home and, and saying, oh, well, I'm just going to try the same thing tomorrow or I'm not going to go back in. You know, you find out and you're and we're going to talk about a lot of things on this podcast. But and you're one of the best I've ever met at reevaluating what you do in territory. And we won't jump. I know we can. We don't have to skip all the way ahead to this, but I wanted to ask you real quick. Let's rewind. Because there's a lot of reps, Sean, and I know you know this, that are in trauma. And I know that you really value your trauma experience. And I think that kind of set the stage for you. And so if you're a rep and you have an opportunity, right, to get some experience in trauma, I think that 
And I've actually talked to a couple of people, new reps trying to break in say, I don't know if I actually want to go to the trauma route. I know, and I always value it because one, I never did it Two, but I know you did it and how much you kind of took away from it. Can you just talk to the listeners a little bit about what are a couple of things that you took away from that, man? Yeah, Jamie, Striker was an incredible experience for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, the fact that it was my, my way into the industry and my first position in the industry. So I'll always look back on it very fondly. So I, I think it did two things for me. One, it highlights work ethic. Trauma in general, the nature of it, so motor vehicle accidents, people breaking bones all hours of the day, you're always on call. It's really not a nine to five or or a seven to five or a seven to seven. You're always on call. You always have that pager with you. If a patient needs you or a physician needs you, you've got to be there. You've got to be ready. And that was one thing that I actually loved about the industry. Um, But going back to why that was important, it really highlights work ethic. So again, because of the hours and because of the nature of trauma happening at all hours of the day, I've always been taught that there's one thing in life you can control, and that's how hard you work. Don't let anybody else beat you at that one thing. And that's the one thing that my whole career I've hung my hat on, and that's been my work ethic. So Stryker kind of highlighted that sense where it kind of weeded out the people that were getting into it for for the glamour or, oh, this is medical device, and, and I can make decent money. And... So kind of weeded those people out, but I was able to thrive in that environment because I really came from the, I'm going to work harder than everybody else. So to some degree, I became a yes man. You know, anything, any call that I got, anybody that needed any help, any 2 a.m. case, any 11 p.m. case, I was saying yes to. One, because I wanted the experience. I wanted the exposure. I wanted people to know that I wanted to develop and get better, but that I wanted to advance in my career. That's what I wanted my superiors to know. That's what I wanted my peers to know. Um, and in general, that's still the way that I feel, but for sure it wasn't that position. I think secondly, it gave me a lot of perspective. So I think when you're working for a striker orthopedic of the world, I had 15 to 25 products with a multitude of screw sizes and instruments in each. So there was just a ton to know. And then I fast forward that experience all the way over to Boston Scientific when I got into SCS or specifically neuromodulation. And I remember there were two products that we had. And had that been my first position in medical device, that may have been overwhelming. I'm not sure, but it may have been overwhelming. And I remember somebody in training saying, gosh, this is extremely difficult. There's so much to know. Like it it truly is overwhelming. And I remember thinking to myself, this is not that bad. It's really, it's really not that hard. There's not much to know. Now I would say that again, that perspective was brought to me by Stryker because at Stryker, there was so much to know my perspective of what was hard and what was overwhelming was elevated because of that experience. So truly for me, that Boston experience, it's not that it was easy, still a lot to know and you're never going to know it all, but it really was one of those, it was easier than a previous experience. So that comfort zone was recreated a level higher. So I was very comfortable in that Boston scientific atmosphere. No, and I'll tell you this, just to kind of go off what you just said, bro, when it comes to the number of products and not the exact same thing as you, but when I worked for Henry Schein and I was young 20s, Earlier in my career, they had a book. It had to have been 75 pages of products. I mean, everything, man. I mean, 22 gauge needles on up to C arms, x ray imaging equipment. I mean, everything. And I remember looking at this thing thinking, there's just no way. Like, wh- how am I even supposed to? What do I even talk about when I go into a primary care office or a derm office or I go into a, even an orthopedic clinic? I had no, because at that point, I wasn't in the operating room. And for me, 
and I think it's kind of the same thing as you, but when my bag got smaller later in device, I got way more dangerous as the bag got smaller because I mean, I wasn't specializing in 75 pages of products, but I picked two or three pages that I was like, look, I'm going to hone in on these things because one, I think they're cool products and I think I'd like to sell them. And that's kind of how I decided on it, which sounds pretty rudimentary. But as I got further down my career and the bag got smaller, I got way more dangerous. So if there's anybody out there that's looking at an opportunity, and again, this isn't the same thing as Sean, but if you're looking at a big bag, that's not a bad thing, right? Take it, drink out of the water hose for a little bit. I promise you, you're not going to die. And and to take one step further, I just, I mean, when you're getting into the industry, I don't think you can pick and choose. I think this is such a tough industry to get into. And we're all very, very blessed to be here and to have stuck around for a little while. But I feel like if you're getting in, whether it be an associate role with trauma or it doesn't matter what the role is or what specialty it's for, it's all good experience. Because once you're in, it truly is. Once you're in, you need to prove yourself, of course. But once you're in, that's 90% of the battle. The last 10% staying in, of course, is also difficult, but breaking in is very, very tough. So I wouldn't pick and choose. I think any position is a good position. And if you look at it the right way and you look at it as a learning experience and something to make you better, then good. You're going to be better. Yeah. And a good learning experience is being a clinical specialist. And you've been yeah, that, it is. right? So you get down to Texas and we're kind of building around the framework here of the career, but you get down to Texas and I want to highlight the clinical specialist because there's clinical specialists right now, Sean right now, today, tomorrow, going to work that want to be TMs. And I had Denise talk about this some on the podcast, but I want to hear how you made the best out of that situation, right? Because you knew that you wanted to manage a territory, but how did you learn what you needed to learn in a quick fashion? Were there any kind of techniques or tips that you might be able to give clinical specialists today that's maybe looking to be a territory manager? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think going back to my striker days, and I'll touch on the Boston clinical specialist, but same, kind of the same thing, sales associate and then clinical specialist. But I picked up the Netter's orthopedic anatomy book when, when I got on with striker. One, it was my first med device job. I was training for triathlons at the time. So I had this book and I remember going to the gym, lifetime fitness and, and getting on the bike for an hour and just reading and reading and reading. And I probably read the Netter's whole orthopedic anatomy book three or four times the first year. It just to the point of, and now there's always more to learn and you're not even ever close to the realm of a physician. I completely understand that. But like, I felt very, very good about what I knew. I felt like I could be a very, very valuable resource for these guys in the OR. I didn't know as much about like in the clinic and how the marketing worked, things of that nature. But I also think then fast forwarding to the clinical specialist role of Boston, you need to be doing the job that you're applying for that you want. You're never a clinical specialist and they're like, very rarely is it, oh, a territory opened up. You've been here for a little while. Maybe you should be a territory manager or, Hey, the territory manager left again. You already covered that territory. Maybe you have to prove yourself along the line somehow. So whether that's asking your territory manager over and over again, like, Hey, eventually I want to be in your shoes, whether if you leave taking over your territory or if territory splits or it doesn't matter. And that territory manager, if they're good and they care for you, then they should open up doors to give you opportunities to put you in a come into a sales call with me. See what that looks like. Let's walk into the hospital together so you can see what a C-suite conversation looks like about pricing or an approval or anything else. But territory managers in, in general, we're all busy people, right? So like very rarely are you looking to go out of your way 
to help someone, and you should. If they're on your team, you absolutely should. But if they ask you, you absolutely will. So I would say as a clinical specialist, if you want to get onto that next role and actually manage a territory, see what managing that territory actually is. Get your hands dirty, so to speak, and feel confident that when that position opens up, you are doing the job. There's no participation medals in this thing. Like It's one of these things where people think, I think they think they deserve, they can sit back as a clinical specialist. And when the time comes, whenever the company thinks they're ready, that's when they're going to get promoted. But those are the clinical specialists that are clinical specialists for five years, and they never go anywhere. They don't ask anybody anything. And actually, frankly, when the territory becomes open, the company elects to go higher outside. They don't elect to promote the clinical specialist. I think that's a bad misnomer with people that they think that because you're the clinical specialist, that you're the next in line. And I mean, Sean, am I, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, am I spot on with that? Because you're not the next in line. You're absolutely not. And like we talked about earlier, this industry is extremely hard to get into. And there are a lot of people banging on this door. That There are a lot of people with really good sales experience that have a proven track record of sales that they've built territories, that they've grown territories year and year over again. You have, yeah, because you're a clinical specialist and you're not doing the sales part, that doesn't make you ready for sales if, in fact, a position opens up. So to your point, if you already haven't shown interest or proven that you can do it or help out in some way where they're like, yeah, you, you put seven toes in the water, well, we'll take a chance on the other three. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They'll look elsewhere to somebody who at least they're like, we can teach you the OR, you know how to sell. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you, bro. I mean, that's spot on. And my thing is too, when we're talking about, and actually we, we've we interviewed a couple, I mean, I've interviewed some people, you've interviewed some people, and we've actually, honestly, we've done it together too, because I want your feedback on people just as bad as anybody I know, man. So, and we've talked about it at Medical Sales College together, just kind of trying to educate people on the interventional pain space and also the industry as a whole. But when people are looking at their resumes, and we honestly, on the podcast, we have barely touched on resumes. Jordan Chase was the last time we talked about resumes. I mean, and that was my first episode, like right before the pandemic, I mean, right in the beginning of the pandemic. And we've talked at length offline about this. And you have some great points, man, that you make about resumes. And I mean, just for the listeners too, Sean's worked at several startups. He's been a regional sales director. So he's done, I mean, Sean, how many states did you cover for Vertiflex? Uh, eight. Eight states. So big area. Okay. He's interviewed. I mean, I don't even know how many people he's interviewed. I don't even know if he knows how many people totally he's interviewed. He probably does. He has it somewhere. But he's got a lot of cool stuff with resumes. Okay. So I'm going to let him just, dude, if you're looking at a resume, like reading it, what are you looking for, man? So that people know how to properly just step one. Let's build it. Let's build the right looking resume for medical device. Yeah. A a resume is just like an interview to me, uh, a little bit different. One, that an interview, you've got a little bit more time to catch someone's attention and to keep it. Whereas in a resume, it's, you know, five, 10, 15 seconds. You've got to catch it pretty quick. So um, one of the main differences is just simply the time, but you need to grab someone's attention and you need, need to keep that attention. And with that, you need to tell your story and it needs to be geared toward the role you're applying for. So really, there are two things I'd probably mention on this. First of all, as far as grabbing someone's attention, so a resume just needs to be aesthetically pleasing, first and foremost. When somebody looks at that resume, the formatting needs to be to a T. It needs to be well laid out. There can't be grammatical errors. Um, if one if one work experience is highlighted a certain color or bold or italics, then the rest need to look the exact same. Again, that goes back to the formatting, the basics of it, but that's the aesthetics of it. If you lose someone at that, you may not get them back. 
So aesthetically, make it look good. Again, no grammatical errors, things like that. Um, and if you have a sales experience, make sure you have your sales number on there. So the sales numbers, the growth, be concise and make sure it's all substance. Don't have filler content. I've always been told for any work experience, if it's your most recent work experience, you can have up to maybe five to seven bullet points. And if it's a two work experiences out or three or four, so a long, long time in the past, try to keep it to three to five. But really on a resume, less is more. Now, if it is a, a major milestone or a major accomplishment, you want to make sure you fit it in there. Um, but you don't just want to have fluff. Second thing, um, your resume is kind of like a preliminary story, uh, at least to me. The preliminary story is that your resume gets you to the interview, which is actually your story. But the preliminary story of it really comes out in your summary statement. So that summary statement, if you do a nice job going into it, kind of filling out your resume for the position, what you're going to do, you're going to look at, obviously, the job posting. You're going to figure out exactly what they're looking for in that role. You'll probably also call a few people within the company, um, probably that occupy that current role that you're actually applying for and ask them what good looks like in the role. Ask them what good looks like so you know what you're applying for and what they're looking for in that role. But then also ask the person that's going to be interviewing you or, or ask the people in that role that you talk to, the person that's going to be interviewing you, what they're like, what they're like, what they're looking for. Because if you can know that, and that summary statement, if you can appeal to it, it's just going to give you one one more leg up and one better chance to get into that interview process to begin with. And then you'll already be prepared for that interview process because you've already done the due diligence to figure out how to fill out that resume. So in a summary statement, you're really, again, you're prepped for the role, you've done the research, you've talked to a few people, you know what they're looking for in the role. It should kind of be your elevator speech. So that should be a paragraph long speaking specifically to the accomplishments that you've had, that you are seasoned, that you are a President's Club winner. I mean, and if you're entering the industry, obviously it's going to look a little bit different, but that you've been successful in what you've done to prepare you for the position that you're applying for, specifically for what they're looking for. You want to make that interviewer's job that's coming into it as easy as possible by letting them know that you are the person for the job. So they're excited not only to bring you over to the interview, but that you may already be the guy going to that interview based off your resume. Oh, attention to detail, man. It's going to say everything about how you're going to act in the field. And yeah, when you say like, hey, it needs to be bold and this needs to be people are like, oh, that's nitpicky. But this industry is nitpicky and nitpicky in the way of you don't have a job if you don't give that right screw. Like you don't have that account. I mean, your reputation is everything, right? I mean, we, we say this. I feel like we say it weekly. I mean, the reputation is life in this industry. I don't care what role you have or what you're selling. And attention to detail. I mean, especially in the operating room. I mean, one little mistake. And yes, the doc drives it and the doc does the case. And it's at the end of the day, it's the liability is on them. But you are a partner in there. And I've said this on the podcast before. You are just as liable, maybe not legally, but you're just as liable. If they turn to you and ask you a question, clinical question, and you don't have an answer, or you don't have a solution, man, you're in a lot of trouble because it's all about the patient at the end of the day. And that's the doc's customer. So it's your customer. So Jamie, you know why it's so hard to convert business in the line of business that we have right now in interventional pain, but going back to the trauma days, just the same. It is because these physicians, to your point, it's all about the patient. It absolutely has to be. And that physician, when you are in the room with them, you, myself, anybody else, they are trusting you to do your job with your product, be the subject matter expert on that, to deliver the right care. And often, sometimes you're offering up your professional opinion 
on a certain size screw or whatever for the patient outcome to be the best that it can be. So they look at that and say, you know what? I trust Jamie. His product isn't the worst by any means. Surely not the best. And I met with a few people who probably have a better product, but I don't know them. I don't trust them. And I can't just throw them in the OR with myself and that patient, not knowing if they're going to come through. That's what it comes down to. And, and that takes a lot of time to build up. And that can be ruined in one experience in the OR. That's why you can never get comfortable with, oh, my business is good. My customers are good. Being in the OR is a privilege every single day. And the day that you say, oh, no, I deserve to be here. I'm entitled to be here. I mean, that's the day that things start tumbling down. Oh, but the thing is, and we've talked about it. We just talked about it at Medical Sales College, but it's you do not always have the best product. Like you don't. And you don't always have the best solution. Like your company, everybody likes to think and look, you got to get passionate and get behind your products. And I know you're the same way. I can't sell a product if I'm not passionate about it. I can't and I won't. I won't get up every day and sell the products. I don't care what, I don't care how much money I can make. I'm not going to sell the product unless I'm passionate about it. That's step for me personally. I know it's the same for you, Sean. That's step one. But just because I'm passionate about it, does that mean it's the? It's probably a great product? Is it the best product? Probably not. Is it going to be the best product in two years? Definitely not. And so the reps that have, oh, I have the best product and I have this and my gun. Yeah, you had the best product for an hour and then next hour might be somebody else. So you better have something else up your sleeve and... It's again, I feel like I'm getting into the weeds on it, but it's one of these things we're talking about. It just cracks me up when people are like, well, I have the best product in the market. I have the most studies and all that's well and good, man. But it's not, you have that today, but probably not tomorrow. Whether it be an individual in the field or a company that feels that way, that's a big miss. If you feel it because you've got the best product, it's a big miss. All right. So we got the detention of details important. So those are the two. I mean, so pretty much you're looking for numbers. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're looking for numbers, you're looking for some attention to detail, right? The correct formatting on the resume. So make sure you have both of those things in line. I think that's pretty across the board too. I mean, you know, your other RSDs you worked with, I mean, you guys are all probably looking for similar things. When you're in the interview itself, everybody's got a different style. So it's hard for us to sit here and talk about, hey, this is the right way to go about it. If you're going to be in this industry, you need to be able to read people. You need to be able to read a room socially. You need to be able to understand social cues. but is there anything that you can give them, Sean? Like if they make it, resume is good. They're sitting down in front of Sean Bryant. What are you kind of keying in on, on potential candidates? Yeah, Jamie. So when, when you make it to the interview itself, it's kind of you made it by that first screening, that first screening being the resume portion of it. Now you really need to crank it into high gear. So that resume portion of it, you did your due diligence, you prepared, you made sure you kind of appealed to the position that you were applying for, but only to a certain degree because really the only ability you have to do that is in that summary statement. So what you're looking to do in an interview, of course, you're looking to grab their attention immediately and you're looking to hold on to it. But as far as grabbing that attention, it is that smile to begin with. It is that handshake. If you're having a person or a face-to-face interview, it's that handshake. It's the smile. It's looking somebody in the eye. And then it's having a simple conversation with them, trying to dig in a little bit more into the position, what they're looking for and why you are that person. So the interview itself, when you get there, should be your story. I met with a number of people who, when they walk into an interview, and if they are the person interviewing, they walk into an interview and they'll sit down and simply say, why are we here? And that is your cue to, for the next 60 seconds, 90 seconds, two, three, four minutes, talk about yourself in sequential order, 
but kind of building on it. So from furthest out to most recent, to the experience where you have now, basically all the way up to you sitting in that chair, you need to tell your story about why you've been successful and why you fit that role. So before you go and do an interview, and typically before you go and do writing a resume for that position to begin with, again, you've done all your due diligence, you've talked to the right people. Now, even more so, you understand exactly what that position entails, what they're looking for in it. Do they need somebody that's analytical? Do they need somebody that's just had a really strong sales performance over the last five years? Do they need somebody who's proficient in Microsoft Excel? You know, things of that nature that you can actually speak to in an interview. Have that be part of your story, knowing that that's what they ultimately want to hear. So, for example, if you're looking to tell your story and you're looking at three or four work experiences out, talk about it and and don't talk about that experience for long because it is so far out. It's not indicative of what you've currently done or kind of what you prepared to do. But talk about it briefly. Highlight something from that experience that translates well for the current role that they're looking and they're actually hiring for immediately right now. Same thing, building on to that next one, add another, take another thing or two that you can actually piece together to fill the void that they're currently looking for in a person for this role, where you continuously add on when you're talking about your work experiences to tell this person that you're interviewing with, hey, I'm the right person for this role. Here's why. Here's my experience. Here's what you're looking for. It continues to add on and add up. And I'm filling that void. I'm telling you that I'm the right person. Another thing in an interview, and I really do believe this, you always need to be positive. Always need to be positive. Don't be negative for a couple of reasons. If you're negative and you're talking about previous experiences and it is yeah, I didn't get along with my manager, or I really didn't like the job, or and and the person interviewing you gets a feeling as though every position that you've continued to jump between has been kind of because of you. Um, really, that is that has become the theme. Then they're not going to take the risk because they're going to think that that same exact thing is going to happen if they hire you on for that position. So, for example, when you're talking from position to position, always build on it, and you always run towards something rather than from something. So for example, I was loving my position. The reason that I was, that I moved on to that next position because it allowed me to get promoted. And I wasn't going to be promoted in my current role because there was somebody speak to that, why you went to that next role, speak to why you're actually at that interview rather than at the company that you're currently with. You know, why are you looking to leave or are you looking to leave? If as long as you're positive about it, I had a really good experience with the current company I'm at, but I feel like I've hit a ceiling. I've uh, been developed extremely well. It's prepared me for this position. That's what they're looking for in an interview. They want it to be positive. They want it to build up to that climax of, all right, perfect. I am the person for this job. Let's go. So as long as you can stay positive in an interview, build on that story all the way up to fill all the void that they're looking for to fill that role, I think you'll be successful. Just so the listeners understand too, because I do a similar thing to Sean. Sean, when is the last time you've ridden your vehicle and turned on a new album? God, I can't remember. Because I want people need to hear this, man. Because this is a big, we just got done talking about this last week. And it really, I've thought about it a lot since we last talked, because it's something that I really, when I ride my vehicle, I mean, how many hours? And I know there's tons of reps that listen to this podcast that are in the vehicle, probably even more than we are. I mean, I know that you're in the vehicle a lot too, and I am, but man, please understand that listening to the new Kanye West album, although it may be good and it may be something that you love, 
and it may make you happy is not helping your personal development. And so, Sean, I mean, in the car, what are you doing? Because you do this so well, man. And I want people to understand what you do because people might pick this up and start Monday. Yeah, Jamie, I'm just of the mindset that everything that we do has an opportunity cost. And, and truly, if you're in the car and you're listening to music, which there's a time and a place to listen to music, don't get me wrong, that you, you can listen to new music coming out and don't feel bad about it. But if that's all you're doing or if you're listening to the radio, or if you're listening to some sort of sports show, at the end of the day, that opportunity cost is you're not doing something that could actually make that time productive. So when we're in the car and, and I've had big territories before, I know you have as well, not only windshield time for me, but also flight time. And if I let that time go to waste, not only shame on me, but then I'm not preparing myself for that next sales call. And I'm not preparing myself for that next CEO meeting or hospital VAC committee meeting or the number of things that we have to do during the day that we need to be prepared for. Um, and I truly just feel as though if you are prepared in that time by listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks, there are so many things you can do to fill that time and to fill that void. Where if you realize when you're doing the reflection on yourself and your career and where you're at, where you want to go, if you can tell yourself, hey, look, I'm really good at these things, but I'm really poor at these things. And if you can be honest with yourself, those things that you're not good at, that is what you should be focusing on spending your time on listening to a podcast about, listening to the people that are are doing things all the time in that realm where you're not as good that you can continue to pick from and take from and deposit into what you do and into your life and into your career, and it will make you better. And I feel like there are a million and one podcasts, same thing with the audiobooks. And if a podcast, a long podcast or an audiobook is too long for you, there's a great app called Blinkist. Blinkist really break, it breaks down books into about 10 to 15 minute snippets, uh, kind of like Cliff Notes, and just a synopsis of it, just the highlights and that can give you really good feedback as far as what you're still looking to listen to, but not in the full audiobook version, just a quick snippet. So really no excuse not to be productive in the car. But uh, I mean, I know l- luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And I feel like the car for us is our time to be prepared. That's our time to get prepared, to feel confident about what we're doing. Uh, it's also our time to call our friends, to call our peers, to network. I feel like if you consistently call people within your industry that are in your position or, or somebody above you, you know, kind of if you're aspiring to be in that next role and you're listening to what they're doing consistently well, and if these people have been successful in the past and are currently successful, that is how you're going to grow. Because everybody in a different geography, even within the same company that you're in, within a different geography, they're selling to different customers, they're selling in a different way. So you're going to, you're going to pick up on things that are actually going to make you more creative in your own territory, which will ultimately lead you to be more successful. So the more that you can network with individuals in the car, both the peers at your company and people outside of your company, whether it be a mentor, somebody in a different specialty of medical device, somebody in a different industry, all perspective to me is good perspective. Again, it kind of gives you that more, it gives you that relative feedback where you can be more creative in your current role. So I think networking is important. I think listening to audiobooks, podcasts, anything that can help you hone in on what you don't do well or what you do do well, do it even better, I think is important in the car. Take full advantage of that time. And I think it's going to pay huge dividends on the back end. Sometimes I'm driving in the vehicle and I set up three meetings on the phone when I'm in my car. Whereas like I don't take office hours for that. 
I set up my meetings when I'm driving around. I'm not now granted, let's stay safe, right? And let's not try to text too much when we're in the vehicle. We want to pay attention to the road. And trust me, I'm a terrible driver. So I need to pay attention as much as possible. Sean knows this. So <laughs> I set meetings up. I'm on the phone. Even if it's like, I'm not even always trying to sell something. I've called people. I called a doc the other day just to tell her that I really appreciate her staff, you know, and that I just, hey, just, I got nothing for you, but I just want to call you that, you know, I really appreciate your staff and how helpful they've been to me. And I think you got a good team behind you. Great, Jamie, thanks. I, I really appreciate you calling. See ya. It's those phone calls that you don't always have to be closing a deal, right? You can move the needle in other ways. I just wanted to really kind of, that's been weighing heavily on me just because, you know, I have a 2018 vehicle and I have 80,000 miles on it. I'm always in my car. And I mean, I just, you're talking to a guy that you've covered way more states than me. Just covering Texas, Houston, I'm putting those miles on, you know, so. You're very rarely closing a deal while in the car. That's not the point. You're preparing yourself to close the deal when you're in front of an opportunity to close the deal. Right. Exactly, man. And honestly, before, and I had this on my list, man, to talk to you about is preparation for your day. It kind of goes without saying, and I may sound stupid saying it, but there are reps that wake up and just go. And again, I don't think that you're doing anything like completely out of the norm. I think the reps that get up and go. And they leave the house and they're like, leaving the house is half the battle. Not really. Leaving the house is the expectation. When you go out in the field, what are you doing in the field? What are your plans, man? I mean, you can't just go even to the point where I, and I know you do this. I put, I even label stuff text. I need a text. I have a column for texting. <laughs> you know, I know you do too. So it's like when you leave, I'm like checking the box on text this person, this person, text this person. And anyway, do you have anything for us, bro, on what you kind of, I know it works well for you and maybe it'll work well for other people, but kind of how you structure your to-do list? Yeah, Jamie, I'm laughing because I'm the exact same way as you. I, I compartmentalize what I need to do. I write everything down. I write probably far too much down. I usually make a make up like a whole notebook page. And I don't always get to all of it. And I'll talk about that in a second here. But I think writing things down is extremely important. I think that we're all busy. And I think that if you don't have a to-do list, I mean, I've got a running to-do list. I've got it on paper, so it's in my pocket. So I can always pull it out, write something down if I need to. But I've also got it on my phone. What I need to to do during that day, what, what are my priorities? There's a book by Stephen Covey called First Things First. And that book does a really good job. Excuse me. It's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. First Things First is another great book that he has, but Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So what this book he talks about is there's four quadrants. So there is urgent and important, and that's quadrant one. That's your priorities, right? And then quadrant two and three are urgent, not important, or not urgent, important. And then quadrant four, not urgent, not important, doesn't matter. Point being, I think when we put things on paper traditionally, and I was, my gosh, I was at fault this early on in my career, we put things on paper and it comprises one through three, things that are urgent and important, but then things that are either urgent and not important or not urgent and important. And we couple them all together and it's kind of how they made it to your to-do list that you try to knock them off throughout the day. And what I was realizing is that I would make it through the day. And I would feel like I got a lot done every single day. I was checking off a bunch of boxes, but we are also human beings. So we follow the path of least resistance. That that is naturally what we do. And I'm trying to get better at that as well. But because of that, you not I would knock off, call it 20 things. And I would always have two or three or four things that would go over to the next day. 
And what I realized time and time again is that those same two or three things were getting bumped to the next day. And I was like, all right, I'll get to them the next day. Oh, the next day. Well, those things were the most important things. Those were your wigs, so to speak, your wildly important goals. And I wasn't getting to them. So in all the other books that I've read as well, they kind of harp on this and Atomic Habits, uh, James Clear, like they, they make this stuff very apparent. Your habits become your future. And I guess two things that I do. One, on Sunday night, I create my, my to-do list for Monday. So it's always the night before. So to-do list for Monday. But I also create five certain wigs for the week, wildly important goals. And those are five things that if I finish the week and that's all I got done, then it doesn't matter. Because I was successful, I moved the needle forward to what I knew I had to do for that week. Hopefully, I got to a lot of other things too. I got those five things done, but got to a lot of other things as well. But at least I would make it to those five things. I would have some sort of repercussion, something with myself, where if I didn't get to it, I was penalized. And so on traditionally on a Monday, I get ready for a Tuesday, a Tuesday for a Wednesday. But what I started doing, so I didn't have all those, oh, I'll get to this one or two thing tomorrow. I'll get to that one or two thing the next day. I started prioritizing my time. It sounds so simple, but I wasn't doing it for the longest time. And I would take what was on that list for the day. And I would say, you know what? It's the 80-20 rule. What can you put 20% of your time in to have an 80% outcome or 80% ROI on your time? ROI is the only thing that we care about. It's not the amount of activity that you do during the day. It's the amount of activity that you do that actually results in something. Right? It's the value-driven actions that you have throughout the day. So I would put the first things first, again, going back to that Stephen Covey book, first things first that were important that I had to get done that actually added the most value to my day, to my territory, to my physicians, to their patients. And I would knock those out. And it would be something where, again, we follow the path of least resistance. I would do it, and maybe I'd get done at 10 in the morning. It was something that took a couple hours, two, three hours, whatever. And I realized I could have done 10 other small things in the meantime, quick email, quick text, whatever, but none of those would have added up to the importance of that one thing that I just got done. So I think if there was anything that I've done better over the years, it's focus on the most important things first and making sure I knock those out and getting to all the rest of the stuff later. And it's funny because if you ask a lot of people, first of all, man, that's gold. I mean, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you saying that stuff because I mean, I need to hear it. One. I mean, I set up my days, but I always can get better. You always can get better at setting, doing anything you do on a daily basis. You can get better, bottom line. And it's good for people to hear what you just said. And also, I love how you talk about all the time. Like, you don't need to make 90 calls in the day. Like, nobody says that. When you, we, we know this isn't a nine to five. Okay, that's one thing that we know. But we also know ROI is king. And if you're making 30 calls but you don't know what you're doing in those calls. You feel like you don't go anywhere. You can't meet with the right people in those calls. It's a waste of time because when your manager comes to ride with you, John, when you go to ride with somebody and they have a whole day set up, I think this is hilarious to me because I mean, I know how you would feel about it, but if somebody had 20 sales calls set up and they had 20 shitty sales calls with you, but you go to the next guy and they have guy or girl and they have six calls, four of them go really, really well. Like, what's a better day to you? Yeah, quality over quantity, 100% of the time. So, I mean, as a past manager, listen, you heard it from this dude. Stop setting up full days of nothing with your manager where nothing matters. If you're a territory manager and someone's coming to ride with you, please set up 
calls that make a difference that you can actually move a needle, not just check a box. Right, Sean? Am I on to something there? Yeah, no, 100%. And I would say, forget the manager for a second. I think you are doing yourself such a disservice if when a manager is coming into town to do a ride along, whether it be one day in a dinner or two or three days, however long it is, to just put calls on there that are in... (laughs) I laugh because people do this all the time. Just put calls on there where they are your best friends and you know the office inside and out. And you can walk through and they're welcoming you with open arms. And then you look at the past 12 months or the past two years or however. And it's like every month they give you one unit or two units or whatever, but they don't grow. And and granted, part of that can be like, hey, manager, I brought you here. So maybe you can have a conversation I haven't been able to have. Let's talk a little bit about where they're at, where they want to go, how we fill that gap. You know, something like that. I get that. But far too often, it's the dog and pony show. And truly, they're dragging you to all these accounts because they want you to feel as though, like, look, my accounts love me. Like, I'm in these accounts. I know these accounts are my friends. I know their birthdays, all this stuff. It doesn't matter. So I would say two things. I would say, if you're a manager and you have somebody who is successful, they're hitting their number quarter over quarter, they're doing well, go in there truly. I've never been somebody, I mean, Jamie, you can attest to this. I've never been somebody to... Jamie, look, once a quarter, I need to check a box. I need to be in your territory. Let me let me hit up a few of your physicians. Let's do that. Never. Jamie, you were successful. And with a successful rep, my methodology is I'm going to call you and I'm going to say, Jamie, look, you're doing the right thing. Does your territory need me? Would it help at all to have some sort of a quote unquote corporate face in town and at a dinner or at a meeting? And if you say no, then I try to put the shoe on. And I remember when I was a rep, which wasn't that long ago, I was a rep. And I remember when, when your manager would come to town and you can't be on the phone, can't be texting, can't return voicemails. Like there's so many things that I would finish a a quote unquote long day. And I would feel so unaccomplished. I was like, yeah, we had good sales calls, but I wasn't able to follow up on emails or texts or phone calls. So like, I wasn't able to do so many things that now I need to do that next day. And I felt like it just, it was kind of a waste of a day. And I never as a manager wanted to be that. I never wanted it to, to feel as though I wasn't just directly helping somebody. So that's why certain reps didn't see me very often. But I would absolutely have the conversation with the likes of yourself and say, Jamie, do you need me? And you'd say no. And you'd say, what's the point? Yeah, sure, Sean, I need you for this dinner. Come in and, and it's this customer. Let's have this conversation. That's great. Yeah, I mean, to go back to your original point, don't just throw a manager in front of all the people that are going to praise you and say that you're the greatest. Put them in front of somebody who can actually, they can move the needle with. Whether it's a customer that truly needs the conversation of you're already giving us business, we'd love you for it, thank you. Where do you want to be and how can we help you get there? Or it's the customer that is truly competitive and it's, here's what we offer. Here's why we're different. Let me bring the corporate perspective in. But if it's not one of those two things, you're doing yourself and your manager a disservice. And also... I just, I have so many feelings, man, about this. I just think the way, and of course, I mean, you're my guy and you're one of my boys. And also I've worked for you. I can't tell you, and I think I speak for a lot of your teams too. And and you don't have to, you don't need to say anything after this, but the way that you manage it, that is the way to go. Because you hire people for a reason, right? You hire people. So, and you know, if they're not doing the job based on numbers, I mean, you know, they're not doing the job. And if they're not, and you ask them to come right at that point, you're probably like, Hey, I'm going to come spend the day with you. Right. But 
if they're saying no and you can't really like get behind them on their numbers and they don't know where they can't tell you how or they're going to hit their quota or that's the best the funny part too is you ask somebody how they're going to do something and they don't know like i asked associates before hey your quota is this how are you going to get there and it's just silence because they don't know because they don't think about it they haven't thought about it which is wildly strange to even say honestly that hurts my head but it's one of these things where I, I think I'm off topic about it, but I do appreciate the way that you, you the way that you manage is very, it's not micromanaging, but it's still like, I'm here to help. If you don't need me, great. Your numbers look good. But from a territory manager standpoint, it's like, man, if you're not, I don't know where I'm going with this, brother. Save me. Well, Jamie, to take you back to kind of a question that you had earlier for me about the clinical specialist role and preparing for a TM. So this is a tangent, but back to one of your original questions. I think that it's important to your point, what you just said, you asked one of your associates how they're going to hit their number and they don't know. I think we would see that a fair amount. I mean, it was kind of a 50-50. Like there were some associates that were like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm going to do. I have a plan. These are the conversations. Perfect. And then there's another 50% that, that didn't really have a clue. And I would say if you're out there right now and you're an associate or a clinical specialist and you truly want to be a territory manager and you don't know how to plan out your day. You don't know how to fill your day without reaching out to your territory manager to ask them what they want you to do. You're probably not ready. I mean, you've been a territory manager for a long time, and I can promise you that there's not a day that goes by where that you don't have an overflowing to-do list because there's just there's so much to do in this job. And in the sales job in general, specifically med device, there's just so many things to do all the time that you can't not be busy. And if you're not busy, then you're just not thinking about things to do and you probably shouldn't be in the role that you're in. No, that's very true. I mean, look, you've had a long, it's when I say long, I mean, it's relatively wrong, right? 10 years of medical device. If you had, and I'm kind of putting you in the spot with this, man, but it's something I really wanted to ask you. And you kind of touched on a little bit before, but then we hopped to something else. If the Sean Bryan today could give the Sean Bryan of call it five years ago, right? Younger, more vibrant Sean Bryan. What advice would you give yourself? Yeah, Jamie. So we probably don't have enough time to talk about all the advice that I would give myself because I feel like I've learned a lot since then, that's for sure. But yeah, if there were three things I would boil it down to, we talked about it earlier. One thing, first and foremost, I would network more. I would network early and often. I would find a mentor in your industry and even outside for new perspective. Like we were talking about earlier, I think it's important. I think every conversation should be valued. And I think if it's somebody within medical device and they've, say it's a regional sales director, say it's a VP, say they're in a cardiology unit, you've never sold cardiology or maybe never sell cardiology. That doesn't matter. They bring a different perspective that will help you in your current position. Value that. So networking is one thing first and foremost. Secondly, trust the process. I feel like I always, I would spend so much more time putting goals on paper. I want to do this much in sales. I want to win a president's club. I want to, and I would focus less on the processes and the activity that would amount to those goals. So the byproduct of those processes would be those goals that I have, but I would focus too much on the goals. What I would start doing is, and what I would suggest anyone do, I don't care if you're one year in your career, 15 years in your career, a VP of sales or a clinical specialist, you need to redefine yourself all the time. I think so. I've been in in this industry 10 years and I I can promise you that 10 years ago, this industry looked vastly different. And that's just in 10 years. If we didn't redefine ourselves, if we didn't reinvent ourselves and get better and transform, 
we would have been lost a long time ago. We would be doing something entirely different outside of medical device. So I think that I would every week early on, and this is something I've done a lot better the last probably three or four years, every quarter, I look back on everything that I've done and I say, okay, it was either good or it was bad, or I just don't know. So it was three buckets. And if it was good, I would leave it in that bucket and say, okay, it's activity. That's good. Let me hold on to that for a second. If it was in the, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad bucket. I would leave it alone for a minute. And if it was in the probably not good activity, doesn't have an ROI, I would get rid of it. No questions asked. I'd get rid of it because I'd realize that even if it was sentimental or yeah, but this activity makes me feel good because a doc gives me a high five, whatever it did. It didn't matter. I had, you had to get rid of it. And then what I would do with the activities that I had left, I'd either say, okay, I'm doing this well and this I just don't know. I'm going to hyper focus on what I do well and do it even better. I'm either going to get better at it to be, again, that much more value added to my physicians or I'm going to do more of it. Same thing. I'm going to start testing and paying attention to these things that I just don't know, good or bad activities. And I'm going to start paying attention to them and figure out if there is an ROI on it. Because I think everything that we do, there's an opportunity cost. And I just want my opportunity cost to be so far below the activity that I'm currently using my time for. So I think that if every quarter and early on in your career, every week, every two weeks, every month, you can look at what you're doing and take notes. I mean, take notes throughout the week of what your activities are. So when it gets to the point that you need to visit that, you actually have it on paper and you can you can do it pretty quickly. But I would redefine yourself and I would be hard on yourself. And if you're somebody that's like, well, I mean, this, this was also good and I did this well and you're never getting rid of things, but your numbers aren't growing, you look at yourself in the mirror. There's a problem. So I, I would just focus on the process a lot more and I would cut it faster. I would fail forward faster, you know, like we talked about earlier but I would focus on the process and then just let the byproducts, the the goals and the successes and the dollar amounts and everything else, I would just let that come to fruition knowing that I'm doing the right activity day in, day out. Yeah. If you're not taking notes on that, honestly, I've got two. I'm taking notes on this thing right now because that's the kind of stuff that honestly, man, on this podcast, that this is why I do the podcast is for that last two minute segment right there where somebody can take something out of this tomorrow and apply it. I do this for that reason so that people can, I can talk, bring people on that are way better than myself at what they do. And so that they can talk about what they do best. So other people can take best practices because at the end of the day, you're right. We do have to redefine ourselves. And this is not an industry of excuses. Like if you're not hitting your number and you're not doing well and you keep doing the same things over and that's insanity, man. That's insanity. Change your game up, do something different. And stop making excuses about why you're not hitting your number or this doctor won't use your product. Strategize better or just move on from that customer. Instead of just banging your head against the wall, move on from the customer that, yeah, maybe they're your best friend. Like people always want to rely on their, and I learned this the hard way. People want to rely on their relationships and they go into the next role saying, oh, I can get, I can do this. And this doctor really, they may respect you and I'm sure they do, but I've been in situations where they don't, they use very little of the product that I have, but they're one of my good friends. It's interesting to think about and sit here and talk about because it goes against a lot of things in sales. It goes against it. Like, oh, you're, if you got a great relationship there, then they should be your top user. Well, I mean, sometimes, not all the time though. I just wanted to get back to that too and kind of harp on that because I've been a victim on that front. 
And I'm, I'm sure a lot of reps have. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I. yeah, I'm not unique in that way. So, man, I, if you can believe it, we're at an hour four. It's floating an on hour and four minutes. This is my longest one, but I knew and going into it, I knew it would be just because I know that you bring a lot to the table, my friend. And this will not be the last time we're going to have you on. There's, there's no doubt about it. And I'm excited for people to get a hold of this thing, man. And uh, I know they're going to learn a lot from it. So thank you, man, for coming on. I appreciate it. I know the listeners do too. Jamie, this has truly been an incredible opportunity. It's been fun to get on. I've listened to every one of your podcasts. You've had unbelievable people on here. It's been fun to be on myself. Absolutely, man. And I will go ahead and hop up. But before I do that, I do want to ask you, is it cool if obviously Sean Bryant, he's on LinkedIn. You can go ahead and flood his inbox up if you want to. He's on there. Anything else, Sean? We don't need to give them your email or anything, but they can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Yeah, of course. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I wish I could say kind of like a uh, Matt Dixon, like, hey, just just find me anywhere books are sold. Yeah. But don't have a book out quite yet or ever. Yes. So yeah. Hit me on LinkedIn. I'll accept it. We'll, we'll connect that way and we'll network. But yeah, no problem at all. Sean, absolute pleasure, man. Thank you for hopping on. And we look forward to having you again, brother. Thank you, Jamie. Looking forward to it. See you, man. <laughs>